you turn with me in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8. Jesus had just laid out what was ahead for him, what his mission was from the beginning. That he must suffer many things and be rejected by the Jewish leadership, be killed, and after three days rise again. Not the plan that Peter or any of the disciples expected at all. Peter was so furious when he heard this taught plainly that he actually rebuked Jesus. And then Jesus, in front of his disciples, identified Peter's rebuke as being straight from hell, saying, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus had just made clear that he was a king but not a king like any they had ever imagined. This is a king who must suffer and die. But Jesus is not through yet here. In chapter 8, verse 34, he then calls the crowd to come to him along with his disciples. And he's now going to lay out what it really means to be his follower. And he wants everyone to hear this. Please take note of that. Jesus lets everyone know up front the cost of following him, what it means. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Now, obviously, this is the, one of the most direct, easy to hear, but not easy to swallow statements that Jesus has ever made. What is it that he is saying? If you have a selection of commentaries available to you, you will see that there's a wide range of answers to that question. But basically what he is saying here in this passage is since I am a king soon to be on a cross, 
If you want to follow me, then you must go to a cross. In other words, he is laying out the requirements necessary for following him. Those words do not come easy upon our ears, but especially they do not come very well understood at all to many, many people who think they're hearing the gospel in our day. And this passage makes that so clear that we want to be careful this morning as we go through it to see what it's really saying and then how that truth impacts all the circumstances of our day-to-day lives. Again, he is not talking just to his 12 apostles here, but to all who would ever be attached to him as his disciples in the future. Those who were already accompanying him and who would follow him or come after him. And this means you and me. And if you consider yourself to be a Christian, then this is to you. I believe it will help all of us if we see from the outset how this paragraph is written. The requirements for being Jesus' follower or disciple are laid out in an urgent manner in verse 34. And then in the next four verses, verse 35, 36, 37, and 38, you'll notice that each of those verses begins in the same way with the word for, F-O-R. So these next four verses explain the basis for the urgency of the command that starts the paragraph off in verse 34. And it gives us a heightened sense of the importance of taking Jesus' words very, very seriously. In other words, the four at the beginning of each verse actually represents an implied warning that we literally feel as we read these verses, especially the first one. It's as though Jesus says, don't you dare refuse to hear what I'm saying. Take discipleship or following me very seriously. Living in this world and belonging to me will require you to go through a lot of what I've already gone through and what I'm going to go through, including what? A cross, like I'm about to go through. Let me read these verses again, but this time I'm going to include this implied warning that's at the beginning of each of the four verses. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him not refuse, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Let him not follow the wrong course. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world 
and forfeit his soul. For once that soul is lost, what can a man give in return for his soul? Therefore, let him not refuse. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If each and every genuine believer is described by Jesus as a follower of his, and that word literally means attached to him, and each and every genuine believer will be required to deny himself and take up his cross and follow him, then it seems like it'd be very important for us to seriously consider what that means. What does it mean to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? What does it mean not to try to save your life because then you'll lose it? What does it mean instead to lose your life for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake so that your soul is saved? What does it mean not to be ashamed of Christ and his words so that the Son of Man will not be ashamed of you when he comes back in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? That's a lot of serious questions. So what we need to do this morning is come to grips with what it means to deny myself and take up my cross. And in Luke's parallel account, it says to take up your cross daily. Well, first notice that in commanding you to deny yourself and take up your cross daily... You're not to live with the goal of saving your life, which is actually a picture of a lost soul. But instead, you're to lose your life for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake, which is actually a picture of a saved soul. The word life here is not referring to a physical body as being alive or dead but rather it refers to your identity, your personality, your selfhood, what makes you distinct. Actually, the Greek word is where we get the word psyche from. Your identity, who you really are inside, your personality, your selfhood, what makes you distinct. So what is Jesus saying then? Well, he's not saying basically, take up your cross, meaning your job, your boss, the drive to work, the irritations you face, you name it. We have a lot of things. It's so much more than that. This means so much more than that, and it's so much deeper and what we find out this means actually will come into play as you face those irritations. But we trivialize it if we say, 
I'm bearing my cross today. I have to see my mother-in-law. I'm bearing my cross today because my neighbor won't do whatever. That is not getting at what Jesus says it means to be his disciple. Those things will be affected if we understand this, more so than anything that you've ever tried in your whole life. In other words, this is not a to-do list. You do this, you're, you're bearing your cross. You do this, you're de- 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 denying yourself. You do this, you're actually following him. Okay? So we need to get that out of the way at the beginning. What he's really saying, and what this really means is that you don't build your identity on gaining things in the world. And we're going to try to explain this. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their soul? And there's a couple of ways to explain this that I think will be helpful. Every society or culture points to certain things and emphasizes those things in saying that if you get those things or achieve those things, then you'll know that you're valuable and respectable. What does it look like then? What does that look like in a traditional kind of society or culture? Well, it would sound something like this. You are nobody unless... What in a traditional culture? You're nobody unless you gain the respectability and the legacy of a family and children. That was the most important thing for many, 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 many traditional cultures. And if you couldn't claim that, then you weren't respected as much, you weren't valued as much, and that's how you saw yourself. Now, some of these vary in degree, but these are generalities that I think will help us understand it. What about individualistic societies? That's ours. With a little bit of rural, traditional thrown in the mix, which really makes it an interesting place to live. True? True? Well, it's very different. This more or less says you are nobody unless you have a fulfilling career that brings in money and reputation and status. Let that sink in for a second. You're nobody unless you have a fulfilling career that brings money, reputation, and status. Isn't it true that that's what our society lifts up? When people say that you tell your children you can be anything they want to be, what is that saying? Well, there's some implications. You can be anything you want to be, especially if... You do this, 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 and this. You attain this, 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 or this. And your identity is completely tied up in it. 
Now, what's interesting about all this is if you look at all societies and cultures in general, every culture, every society in some way, either inherently or covertly, say that identity is some performance-based or achievement-based goal or ideal. And what does Jesus say about this idea that your identity has to be rooted in what your society or culture believes is the most important? Jesus simply says that it won't ever work. Instead, Jesus says that if you gain the whole world, it won't be big enough to satisfy you. It won't be big enough to cover up what you know deep down inside in your heart that you still feel inconsequential. And you're still not sure of who you really are. And there are some examples. If you're building your identity on the achievement, and we're just going to use a few examples here. We're not going to cover the basis, so don't get upset. If you're building your identity on the achievement of a certain status, like somebody loves me, or I've got a great career, then what happens when something goes wrong with that relationship or that job? You fall apart, and you feel like you don't have a self, and you're an absolute wreck. And I think that's a pretty good picture of the world that we live in. Another aspect of this that maybe a lot of us are or have had personal experience with also is, you know, I've been a failure, I've been immoral, so now I'm going to go to church and become a moral, decent person. And then I'll know I'm a good person because I'm spiritual. And what does Jesus say to that? Interestingly, Jesus says right here, I don't want you to simply shift from one performance-based identity to another performance-based identity. I want you to find a whole new way. I want you to lose the old self, the old identity, and base yourself and your identity on me and the gospel. Because Jesus wants you to get beyond the I'm going to build my life on God now syndrome. Which sounds a lot like you're just planning on doing this by your own strength and will. Which is what so many of us get involved in. Until God roots those things out. To show you that you can only operate if you know your identity is in Christ, if you belong to him, he gives you your identity. Now, 
just think about how we talk about people. There's nothing wrong with this. We're interested in people. We want to find out who they are, right? What's the first thing you ask? What do you do? Immediately, we're so wrapped up in what our jobs are, what our work is, what our calling is, that we not only say that's what we do, but that's pretty much us. Isn't it? Well, it is in a lot of ways. Because God has given mankind a mandate to work. But to have it be your identity is a whole nother ball game. And that's where we get into big trouble. If, if you're understanding this at all, try it out this week. With people you know and you love, ask them. What do you do? They tell you. But ask yourself this. How do you answer that question? And if you do say, it's a good way to get a conversation started, right? Well, this is what I do. I guarantee you, you will not find as many people completely becoming quiet if you answer the question the way I have to. What do you do? If I say immediately, well, I'm a pastor, it's like, or the person is thinking, first thing, how can I get out of here? True. Now, when I taught high school, I could say, well, I'm a high school teacher. And immediately people would just go, oh, I feel so sorry for you. <laughs> My father-in-law said, when are you going to get a real job? He thought it was playtime all the time. He never did understand it. All of y'all have experiences like that with whatever you may do. But how about asking yourself this question? Are you thinking, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ who just happens to be called to do this or that? If you think that, you can answer the rest of the question. You can start off telling people what you do, but you won't get caught up in the, well, I'm doing more than you are. I'm getting paid more than you are. I've got a better job situation than you do. What you do is ridiculous, which we think about when we have these conversations, Drew. We need to understand this. If we get into this religious side of this syndrome, and some of my biggest heartaches over my whole adult life have been being responsible for a baptism here or there where the person didn't want to be baptized because they truly know Christ. But underneath, and time proved this later, that they just thought they could get washed clean and then start over and then they'd be okay and just run the course 
in their own strength, their own way, without ever knowing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And the Savior part was then in doubt. And that happens a couple of times. And it should break your heart. And it does when we realize that's what's really going on. But if you're just planning on doing this Christian thing by your own strength and will, is that even possible? Christians should know that the gospel is the story of God's Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who came to earth in the form of a man so he could pay the price for the sins of those he came to save with his own life by dying on the cross in your place. And Jesus includes the gospel here for my sake, for the gospel's sake, because he wants you to look beyond him as just a teacher or a prophet or a principle of goodness or even as an example. And he wants you to actually look at his life and what he did with it and why. Why would Christ do such a thing? Why would he do this? Why did he come to earth? Why did he willingly die? Because we deserve it? Nope. Because he needed a relationship with us? Nope. He did it because he wanted to save us from ourselves? It pleased him to save many? He did it because he wanted us to know his grace and his love. So he literally paid the price for our sins with his own life and with his own blood purchased us and clothed us with his righteousness, forgiving us of all of our sins, adopting us as his sons and daughters, giving us eternal life and bestowing on us His own inheritance. Now, does seeing this and knowing this and knowing the one who did this, does this move us to begin to get a strength and assurance, a sense of your own value and distinctiveness that is not based on what you're doing or whether someone loves you or whether you've lost weight Or how much money you've got. That's why what Jesus says here hits us so deeply. In other words, you are free from the enslavement of your own particular specific identity. That's not All you are, it's not even really who you are in so many ways. If you belong to Christ, your identity is his follower. And that's why this whole lordship debate that happened a couple of decades ago is so absolutely ridiculous. Because if he's your savior, he's your lord. 
They go together. And that's what Jesus is making so clear here. It's amazing to me how many of us hear a gospel presentation that doesn't even mention sin, and we think it's so wonderful. It's not. It's a con. Jesus shows us our need for a gospel, which is what makes it so precious. Because we know we don't deserve it. We can even turn that kind of love into a personal growth project for our own glory. We still have this problem. C.S. Lewis writes that if you go to Jesus to get a new personality, you'll still, you still haven't gone to Jesus. Now, you guys that read C.S. Lewis know that he doesn't write like that. This is a summation. Your real self will not come out as long as you're looking for it. What? Just think about how counterintuitive this is, how counter to everything in our culture this is. Your true self will only emerge when you're looking for Christ because that's who you really are if you truly know him. Think about Peter and what happened when he heard that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Peter was furious because he had an agenda, and his agenda only included a rise to political power, and he was riding Jesus' coattails into Jerusalem to become the Messiah King. Bye-bye, Romans. Peter's agenda did not include suffering. A cross. And if you think Jesus is just the means to help with your agenda, then this means you're just using him or thinking you can use him. But if Jesus is the king, which is Mark's main theme, Jesus is the king, then you cannot make him a means to your end. You cannot come to him negotiating. You lay your sword at a king's feet and you say, command me. If you try to negotiate instead and say, well, I'll obey you if, then you're not recognizing him as king. But don't forget that Jesus is not just a king, he's a king on a cross. If he was only a king on a throne, you would have to submit to him just because you had to. This is the picture of the child who is told to sit down and be quiet. And the child sits down, but the joke 
quote-unquote, is what? He's still standing up on the inside. That's why most of us live most of our lives. But Jesus is a king who went to the cross for you. You can submit to him then out of a love that is real and trust that is true because he proved it with no fear of his motives, no hidden agendas. Does that change anything? Well, this means coming to him, not negotiating, but saying, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. And whatever you send into my life, I will accept. Help me accept it. Help me see you for who you are and to see my life for what you want. For me, ways for me to be used by you to point light to your glory and who you are. So the simple question that we've heard over and over, but hopefully in a context like this it's coming through better, is when someone gave himself utterly for you, how can you not give yourself utterly to him? What's the underlying thought there? Who do we think we are? So, really what we're talking about, what Jesus is talking about in taking up your cross daily, it means, first and foremost, primarily, foundationally, that you die to believing that you are the ultimate authority over your life. direct contrast with what our culture tells you every single day. You die to assuming control over your own life. If he's your Lord, it really doesn't make any difference what you think or I think. If he's my Lord, it's what he thinks that matters about life, about day-to-day, about relationships, about your role, about your whatever. And taking up your cross means that you must die to trying to use God to accomplish your own agenda. What does life experience teach you about some of these things? One of the things it teaches you is that sometimes God goes ahead and gives you what you're asking for, knowing that it will lead you to trouble. Because he knows that's the best way you're ever going to get it. And that's how sometimes he uses circumstances in life to open our eyes to see what really matters. Denying yourself is almost self-explanatory. Taking up your cross is a part of this sentence. 
for a reason. It means that you must die to believing you're the ultimate authority over your own life. Do you really? Do you first and foremost think of yourself right now as belonging to one who bought you with the price of his own blood? And he loved you enough to do that because you needed it done. Taking up your cross means to die to assuming control over your own life. Apply that every day. You come home. How's your day? Well, it sure wasn't what I expected. Now, I hear my wife say that almost every day. But she's learned to say it with a smile, which is very convicting. Why? Because she knows who she's serving. Now, most of the time, do I? Do I try to use God for my own agenda? I hope you all realize that that's a redundant question for a pastor, or somebody in ministry. It's awful easy to just start assuming that. As we approach the Lord's Supper, I don't think we need much of an introduction. But let me pray and then introduce our meal. Father, as we approach the Lord's Supper... After this passage in Mark, we want to come humbly before you and come to grips with the depth and magnitude, the breadth of the love that you have for us to send your own son to to live the perfect life that was demanded of us so that he could die for us and pay the penalty for my sin. And God, as we... As we consider these truths, we ask that you'd open our eyes to see more of the picture that you paint before us of your majesty, your magnitude, your your faithfulness, your love, your holiness, and how you can be a holy, righteous God and a God who loves unconditionally in your Son to bring us so we can stand before you clothed in his righteousness and know you, our creator. Lord, we realize that if we belong to you, that we will spend eternity never, ever bored in your presence. Never, ever thinking that we've got it completely down. As you open to affinity, the wondrous majesty of your person and character. And we ask that you'd bless this meal for us today, which we know is a is a great reminder for your son and his work. 
what sin's cost really is. And we thank you so much for uniting us to him, for forgiving us all of our sin and allowing us to enjoy the fellowship of your spirit amongst your people. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.